Our sermon this morning is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, on the visit of the Magi. So turn to Matthew 2 in your Bibles. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Matthew 2 on page 757. So turn there. The story of the, the Magi, the visit of the Magi, is a classic, classic part of the you know, Christmas story, the nativity. We're all probably familiar with it. We've all seen the nativity sets, uh, the, the barn, the stable, Jesus in the manger, Mary, Joseph. We've got uh, shepherds around and farm animals and angels are kind of there singing. And, and then you've got the three kings, right? The, the song, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar. You might have even, if you're, if you kind of nerd out on it, you might even know their names or kind of know, uh, the names that we've, that we have for them, uh, Gaspard, Mel- Melchior, and Balthazar. Uh, that's kind of what we tend to see in our mind's eye when we think about the nativity, when we think about what happened on the night that Jesus was born. Now, I don't want to be like, I don't want to be like a gotcha journalist or, you know, cast doubt or anything, but, Mo- a lot of that that I just said probably didn't happen. Probably, it probably didn't happen in that way. Um, and so we're going to examine maybe some of the myths or the misconceptions or the misnomers about the, the Magi uh, as we work through this text uh, this morning. None of it's necessarily bad, right? Like that song, We Three Kings, not, ba- not bad by any stretch. There's nothing uh, heretical in it. But it's just maybe not entirely historically accurate. And it's also not entirely consistent with what we see in the the gospel of of Matthew. So we're going to take a look at the visit of the Magi, see what the Bible says about it, and kind of consider what we as followers of Jesus can kind of learn from and derive from uh, these uh, these visitors that that came and visited visited Jesus. So let's read Matthew 2, 1 to 12. Let's get, get right to work. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And, and when King Herod heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, this story is 
familiar to many of us. We hear it every year. We see it acted out in in, uh, children's Christmas plays. But maybe it's become a little too familiar. So much so that we rush past it. That we don't stop and take notice of what you would have us to see in it. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to see this story, hear this story, experience this story with, with fresh eyes so that we might experience your glory and your grace in the midst of it so that we might grow to love you more. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So I want to unpack a few things that we see in this verse that might actually, uh, you know, might push back against uh, some of what we understand uh, about these three three people. Well, the first is uh, who they were. Right? It says, after days, uh, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The word that's used for wise men is uh, magos, um, which uh, does not uh, mean king. So it's unlikely that these three, uh, that these men that came were kings, despite the song that we, that we sing. Uh, so magos, uh, yeah, wise men is, a, is a, a, a probably a pretty good translation um, but yeah, the word magos comes from a Persian word, which basically means uh, of the priesthood or clergy, but specifically, um, you know, it also refers to astrologers, or astronomers, seers, people who interpret dreams, also includes physicians, soothsayers, sorcerers, things like that. And so in all likelihood, we're probably referring to, uh, you know, Gentile uh, religious teachers, Gentile, like pagan priests or pagan uh, prophets or, or magicians, that kind of that kind of thing. Probably not kings. Uh, probably pagan priests or pagan astrologers. We can kind of see the word the word magi is used elsewhere uh, in in scripture. Um, it, in when we look through the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, but when we look at how interpreters have kind of uh, you know translated Hebrew into Greek, they'll use the word magi for a few different things. One is uh, Exodus 7, where Moses Moses comes before Pharaoh, right? Let my people go. And Pharaoh is surrounded by all of his magicians and sorcerers. And they're like the guys who can kind of like do the same, you know, they like do these magic tricks that kind of try to pretend that they are, you know, powerful like Moses when he is doing the, the, these works and signs from God. And so it says that, Mo, that Pharaoh is surrounded by magicians and sorcerers. That's magos, that's magi. The story of Balaam and the donkey in Numbers 22 to 24. It's a weird one. So if you're not familiar with it, read that, read that for homework this afternoon. Uh, the story of Balaam and the donkey. Basically, uh, God literally speaks to this pagan uh, magician, this pagan prophet named Balaam. He speaks to him through his donkey. Like this, this guy's donkey speaks verbally and Balaam hears, uh, hears it. But Balaam is referred to as a magos, as a magi. Uh, probably the most that we see it is in the book of Daniel. Daniel is brought into the royal courts in Babylon during the Babylonian captivity, and uh, he is kind of one of these one, one of these Hebrew men that kind of comes into. They're trying to. They're kind of indoctrinating these guys to kind of turn them from Jewish people into Babylonians. And so Daniel is actually a real picture of how you can remain faithful even in the face of you know someone trying to you know 
reprogram you, as, as it were. But uh, Daniel is, is surrounded in the book of Daniel by magicians and enchanters and astrologers. Daniel spends the better part of uh, that book interpreting people's dreams. Um, and so that's something that magi do, right? They're, they're dream interpreters. And in Daniel 5.11, uh, it says that Nebuchadnezzar actually put Daniel in charge of all of the magicians and enchanters and astrologers in Babylon. So Daniel was a magi. <laughs> Daniel was put in charge of the Babylonian magi in the book of... It's very possible that these magi that came to visit Jesus were from you know, from Persia or from what had kind of, what Babylon was, it kind of became. And so it's very possible that these guys were taught by, it's very possible that like these, these three, these magi, when they kind of think, all right, who's my teacher and who's his teacher? And they worked their way all the way back. Daniel was in that list. Like uh, Daniel was kind of the, who, someone who taught the people who taught the people who taught uh, the, these uh, magi. So that's kind of, so yeah, probably not looking at kings, probably pagan priests or magicians or astrologers of some kind. You've heard me mention the number three a few times, but that's another myth maybe that we can kind of, uh, you know, poke, poke at a little bit, is that we don't know that there was three of them. We don't, they, they weren't kings. They probably weren't, they might have been kings. They probably weren't kings. They were probably priests or astrologers. Uh, there might have been three of them. There might not have been. All we know is that it's a plural, uh, plural wise men or plural magi. And so, uh, a lot of us assume, or the reason why a lot of people in church history assume that there's three is because they offer three gifts uh, down in verse 11. But we don't, that doesn't mean that there was three men. Could be two, and maybe just one of them carried two gifts. Could be three, could be a hundred. There could be a hundred magi that came, and they all carried one of those three uh, gifts or something. We, we don't really know. We know that it was plural. We don't know that it was three. So they probably weren't kings. There might not have been three of them. Let's go through the right. We three kings of Orient art. So probably weren't, might not have been three, probably weren't kings. They probably weren't from the Orient. That's just a weird, the word Orient has kind of uh, got, gotten some baggage in our, in our you know, society today. It's basically an outdated word for China or a country around China, right? Eastern Asia. And so if we hear the song and say, we three kings from the Orient, um, it, it that's probably not correct if we're understanding Orient to be China or close to China. The word Orient in that song just comes from a Latin word that means East. So that actually is right. Like, it does say that they were wise men or magi from the East. And so, but how, like, China is way East, uh, you know, thousands of miles East of Jerusalem. And so it's very unlikely that they traveled all the way from China here. It's more likely that they traveled from uh, you know, Persia or Syria or Jordan, somewhere that's just kind of just east of, of uh, Israel. So they were from the east, but not from what, we, you know, what our word orient or oriental kind of comes to have, have connotations. So, might not be three, not from the orient, not from the, the area of China or eastern Asia or southeastern Asia, probably not kings. And another misnomer that's interesting to look at is that they probably didn't come and visit Jesus on the night that he was born. So if you look at the nativity scene and you've got like the, the stable and the manger and Jesus, like shepherds and angels were there. We can see that in Luke chapter 2. But the Magi probably weren't there on that night. They probably got there sometime later because this is now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea in the days of Herod the king. 
So in all likelihood, that is saying that it's referring to some time after, some time uh, later. The reason we can kind of uh, understand that from, from uh, you know, any number of, there's, there's like a few clues in the Bible that help us to realize that. One is the word, uh, the words that the, that the guys use. In Luke 2, it says, go and you'll find the baby in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. It's the word for baby that means like newborn infant. And here, Matthew is saying, uh, they came and they saw the mother and his child, which is not the word for baby, it's the word for like, child, which could mean baby, but it also could mean like little, basically anyone between birth and like adolescence is kind of the word that they use here in Matthew. So it probably, they probably didn't come on the night that Jesus was born, maybe weeks later, maybe months later. We know that it was no more than two years later. And this is, we can kind of do some detective work to figure this out. Uh, when you look at uh, Matthew 2, 7, so the, maybe another, another slide or two, it says that, um, that Herod summoned the wise men and secretly ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he says, hey, I want to know when this star came so I can kind of start to figure out and get some clues as to, uh, you know, when this kid was born. And then next week we're going to look uh, in the next passage, but in, in verse 16, if, you have, if you're holding your Bible, it says, Then Herod sent and killed all the male children in, in, in Bethlehem and all in that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod says to the wise men, When did the star come? And they say, We never hear their answer. But then later he says, kill all the kids that are under two years old in accordance with the answer that I heard from the wise men. So presumably the wise men said, the star came, well, we don't know. It can't be more than two years old or else Herod wouldn't have done, it wouldn't have have made sense for why Herod would have decided to kill all the boys two years old or younger. So either they said, okay, the star's been there for a week or a month or a year or 18 months or 23 months, sometime between zero and 24 months. And that's what kind of told Herod, okay, I need to eliminate all of the boys that are under two years old. I mean, Herod was particularly ruthless. So they might've said, it came a week ago. And Herod says, well, I'm just going to be on the safe side and just eliminate all the male children that are two and under we don't, we don't really know, but we know that the wise men came within two years of Jesus' birth, but we don't know if they came within a week or a month or a year. It's kind of uh, just speculation um, at, that, at that point. So in all likelihood, when you're looking at uh, Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, um, in all likelihood, uh, the, those two, the, they tell the same story, but they kind of, Matthew kind of takes... Matthew has a bunch more things that it kind of inserts in uh, between uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. So if you're reading Luke, uh, you know, you'll read the story of Jesus being born, and then he's uh, circumcised, and Mary and Joseph bring him to the temple, and they present him, and he's about a week old, and that ends at Luke 2.39. And then, uh, that ends at Luke 2.38. And then in verse 39, it says that they are traveling back to Nazareth where Jesus grows up. Now, probably inserted between Luke 2.38 and Luke 2.39 is the entirety of Matthew chapter 2, which is where the wise men uh, come and visit. And then uh, Herod uh, is going to kill all of the young children in Israel. So Mary and Joseph take Jesus and they flee to Egypt so that he won't get killed by Herod. And then they leave Egypt and go back to Nazareth. And they kind of, the two narratives come back together at that, at that point. So that's just kind of some preliminary kind of stuff about the Magi. 
who they were, where they were from, when they came uh, to visit Jesus, those, those kinds of, of things. It, it may have been three, but it, def- it was definitely a plural number, two or more. Um, probably magicians or astrologers or Zoroastrian priests or something like that. Uh, they traveled to Jerusalem from, from somewhere east of Israel, maybe Persia. And they eventually arrive sometime after Jesus was born. When they get there, they start asking around. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship them. Now, depending on what translation you use, uh, you might, it might say something different than this. Uh, some translations say, we saw the star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And some say, we saw the star in the east, and we have come to, to worship him. And they're both right, because... Oddly, the word, the word rise or arisen or rose is the same as the word east in Greek. And that's because the sun rises in the east. So, so if you're asking for direct directions, uh, you're going to say, you know, go, go five miles east. Or you would say, go five miles in the direction of where the sun rises. And that's, those would, be, would literally be the same the same word. So when you're translating sentences, sometimes it's tough to tell, okay, does this, is this the word rise or is this the word east? And it could be, it could be either uh, one. But it does, like, so if you translate it as uh, we saw the star uh, when it arose uh, and we have come to worship him, which the ESV translators do, then it seems that it's an allusion uh, to Numbers 24, which is the, which is uh, spoken by the guy Balaam that I was talking about earlier. Um, Numbers 24 says, uh, A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. That's Numbers 24, verse 17. So, essentially what's going on is you've got Balaam, who himself is a magi, right? He's a prophet, a seer from the east, he comes to Israel and he says that a star will rise to defeat the enemies of God. Well, here in Matthew 2, we've got magi from the east who come to Israel and they say that, a, that we've seen a star rise. The, the magi are essentially saying uh, Balaam in Numbers 24 said that a star was going to rise and that that star was going to be um, you know, a person who is going to defeat the, right, he, the, the star rising out of Israel is going to be the Messiah. He's going to defeat the enemies of God. He's going to establish justice for his people. We are seeing the star rising. So where is the, you know, where is the, the star? If, if Balaam was, was using the word star to refer to the Messiah, we're seeing literally a star in the sky. And so now we're here asking you, where is the Messiah, where is the, the star that's going to rise out of Israel uh, who is going to defeat the enemies of God and rule over the people of God? So where is that guy? So presumably that's what the Magi are asking and kind of alluding to and referring to when they come into Jerusalem. They're saying, uh, we're familiar with some of these Old Testament prophecies about a star that's going to rise and the, the Messiah, King of God's people, that that represents we see the star literally, and now we're asking for the, if anyone knows where the star, prophetically, the Messiah, is. And of course, that troubles King Herod. 
When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. He freaks out. It's not uncommon for foreign dignitaries or, or yeah, or magi, right? Like wealthy people. Uh, it's not uncommon for them to travel from civil, you know, from civilization, city, country to others when. Uh, when there are notable events in those countries. So if a new king uh, gets installed, uh, then you would go visit him and you would bring a gift. Or if a king has a baby, you would go and visit him and you would bring a gift. When there was a transition uh, in, in, of power, transfer of power in a country, you would, go, you would send priests, lieutenants, magi, have them pronounce a blessing over this other country and bring gifts to them. That was kind of their diplomacy. That was their foreign policy was we're going to keep up good relations with all of the tribes and all of the, the you know, uh, civilizations around us uh, so that they won't attack us and so that they won't kill us. So we're going to give them gifts and we're going to just make sure that they like us and that we like them. And so Herod sees these guys coming and he's kind of thinking, I, this kind of fanfare is usually reserved for me. And my, like, if I were to have a kid, because when you say fanfare, Again, we don't know that it was three. It might have been 30. It might have been 300. And they were probably very wealthy to make this trip like this, probably like billionaire status, right? We're probably talking about uh, a multiple number of wealthy, important, prominent people that probably travel with a big entourage, probably travel with private security, maybe even a small army. And they just come into Jerusalem. It's like this big thing with a lot of fanfare. And Herod is like, what is going on? This type of Fanfare and procession is usually reserved for me and people close to me. So why are they here? You know. Why are they here? Like, why are they here asking about a king that's not me or my king? Like, if, you're, if you work at a place and your title is the senior vice president of operations... And the CEO invites you in his office and says, hey, I want you to meet Bill, our future senior vice president of operations. That's a little, I don't know, that, that might make you a little bit nervous, right? You're probably thinking, all right, is he going to have my job because I got promoted? Because that's great news. Is he going to have my job because I got fired? That's not as good. Or in Herod's case, he's thinking, is this kid going to have my job because I got killed? That was probably the most likely, the, the, the most likely re- way for someone other than Herod and his kids to occupy the seat of king in Israel would be if he got uh, assassinated and killed by, by a coup. So Herod's troubled, and he's worried, and all of Jerusalem is troubled because it, it feels like instability. It feels like an insurrection. It feels like, like turmoil, and it feels like maybe Herod is not going to take this lying down, and, and, and these kings are here to celebrate someone else. So this is, we're, we're maybe looking at a, a civil war here, and everyone's troubled and bracing for impact. Verse 4, And then assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them, Where is the Christ that was born? So Herod, he doesn't call them magi, right, which kind of has a connotation of being Gentile uh, and, and kind of other religious, but he the, the clergy, all of the religious leaders in Israel, and he says, hey, where's this, where's this kid uh, going to be born? Like, th- these pagan priests seem to know more about this king being born in Israel than, than I do, than we do, so where is, uh, where is this kid going to be born? And they say he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. 
For so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall come, or for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Micah 5 2 is what we looked at uh, in the call to worship. Micah 5 is an entire chapter about the coming Messiah, the coming king, the coming ruler of the people of God. And it, and it compares him to David through Bethlehem, right? David was from Bethlehem. And so Micah 5 is saying that this ruler is going to come from Bethlehem, just like David came from Bethlehem. He's going to be a shepherd like David was a shepherd. He's going to rise to king like David rose to the king. He's going to be from Bethlehem like David was. He's going to do battle with the enemies of God's people like David did. He's going to slay them and crush their head like David did. He's going to have victory uh, over the enemies of God's people and he's going to impute his victory to his people who are identified with him like David did. He's going to establish peace and security and prosperity for his people like David did. That's Micah 5, kind of you know, saying that the Messiah is going to come in the footsteps of, in the line of, King David. And so the religious leaders say, Herod, uh, it's a no-brainer. The, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So now Herod's like, all right, I'm starting to gather some intel. I'm starting to get some information. In verse 7, he says, all right, I'm going to summon the wise men. I've asked my religious leaders about some of the details, and now I'm going to ask the wise men directly. So he summons them secretly, and he ascertains from them the time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. He says, he says they're going to be in Bethlehem. That, that I, we know that much. So you go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word back that I may come and worship him too. He's, he's being sneaky. He's being de- deceptive, right? He's kind of posing to these guys. Oh, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. I'm not troubled at all. I'm not worried at all. I am really excited with you. I can't wait to go and worship this kid like you are going to do. So go find out where he is. Come back and let me know. Because I want to go worship him uh, now. I certainly don't want to uh, go and, and kill him now. Uh, I certainly don't want to, you know... Go find this kid who at the moment does not uh, represent a threat to me because he's a little tiny boy and who I could, you know, dispose of without any repercussions at all. I certainly don't want to do any of, of that. I want to go and I want to worship him like, like you do. Again, we, we realize uh, in next week's text what his motivation really was, what his motivation really was. And so the whole time, uh, Herod's kind of been gathering intel, right? He, um, he asks the, the wise men in verse 11, we're going to see uh, in, in just a moment, he says, uh, you know, he ascertains the time when the star had arisen. Um, and then in verse, in verse 6 that we just looked at, he's asking the guys, so he's kind of saying, I want to know who this Messiah is, who this aspiring king is. I want to know where he was born, and I want to know when he was born, Right? Uh, ideally, I'm going to have the Magi come back to me and tell me his specific address. So I can just send a SEAL team in there, surgical strike, one boy, threat to me, take him out, all is fine. But worst case scenario, if they don't come back to me, I want to know where he was born and about when he was born so that I can, you know, if I need to eliminate Jesus in a way that 
has a lot of collateral damage, kills a lot of young children, I'm happy to do that. I will stop at nothing to eliminate this kid, Jesus, if I, if I have to. So Herod wants to kill Jesus. He doesn't want the Magi to know that he wants to kill Jesus. He wants to gently and kind of uh, deceptively extract as much information out of them as he, as he can. In verse 9, And listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them uh, came to rest over the place where the child was. So they traveled pretty much uh, straight west to get from their home country to Jerusalem. And now this last leg of their journey is pretty much straight south. They're going from Jerusalem uh, down south to the, the city of, of Bethlehem. It's about a six-mile trip. And it says now, the, so before it was just saying that the star was in the night sky, but not necessarily that it was over the place where Jesus was. Just that there was a star that had arisen and it was in the night sky, and that's what prompted them to go to Jerusalem. But now it says specifically that the star went before them and came to rest over the place where the child was. In fact, we can kind of deduce that maybe the star wasn't above where Jesus was up until this point because... Uh, in Luke, when the shepherds are in the fields, oh, keeping watch over their flocks by night, and the angels come to them, and they say, where's this boy? They, say, you, they don't say, oh, you'll find him by go where the star is. And then immediately under the star is baby Jesus. They say, you will find the child wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So like the, the specific thing that's supposed to help the shepherds know where Jesus is, is that he's lying in a manger and he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. Not that there's a star overhead. And so... Maybe the star wasn't overhead. Maybe the star just was something in the night sky that prompted the Magi to start their journey. And then once they got here and talked to Herod, that's when the star kind of zeroed in and came and it, and it actually rested over uh, the place where Jesus, the child, uh, was. Then verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Right, so now, so they're 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 going from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and they see the star, and they're like, "This is great news. We are astrologers. We are astronomers. We know all about the night sky, and we can tell if there's any sort of like disturbance in the force in terms of where all of the stars are. And there's a star that's an anomaly. That's and so that's good news. We can see it. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So they get to Bethlehem. They find Mary and Joseph. They fall down, they begin to, to acknowledge that Jesus is the future king, that he's going to reign over his people, and they want to, they want to like get in on the ground floor, on the record, at the outset of his life. We've traveled a great distance, we've you know, brought gifts. We're, this is not the kind of behavior that you would do for any random guy that might conceivably possibly become king at some point. This is the kind of behavior that you do for someone who you are extremely confident that they will become the king. It says, Then they opened their treasures and they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And each of these three gifts carries a particular connotation. Might, it might not be that the, the magi themselves were fully aware of the theological implications of these gifts. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. We don't know. But these three gifts each do carry a particular theological implication. Gold is a gift that you would give to a king, right? 
uh, the ruler of a people, the most powerful, richest man among a, a people group, that would be the king, and he would have a lot of gold. Gold was seen as the pinnacle of wealth and luxury. It was precious. It was rare. Kings would tax their people, and that revenue would be delivered to them in gold. They would impose levies and tribute on other nations, and that would be paid in gold. Right? If you're a wealthy king in a large, powerful nation, everything around you was covered in gold. Furniture, plates, cups, utensils, it was all gold. If you look at 1 Kings 10, it's a, it's a chapter all about the wealth of King Solomon. And the word gold is mentioned over and over and over and over. Gold. He had gold this. He had gold that. He had this much gold. His taxes would be delivered to him. And it was this many pounds of gold every month, every year. A lot of gold. Gold was for kings. Gold was a gift that you give to a king. Frankincense was used in worship services. Frankincense is a resin from a tree, and when you burn it, it smells really fragrant. And so it was, it was, it was uh, used to create incense that was burned in worship services that was supposed to be pleasing uh, to the gods, an offering given to the gods. In Exodus 30, God tells Moses specifically how to make fragrances and oils and incenses to burn in the tabernacle because God likes these pleasing frankincense, you know, these pleasing smells. In Revelation 5, God is sitting on his throne and the entire world is gathering around him and worshiping him and they are holding bowls full of incense, frankincense. And it specifies to say that the, the incense that's burning and that God is enjoying the smell of are the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the people of God. So gold is for a king. You give gold as a gift to a king. Frankincense is for a god. You burn frankincense to worship a god. And then finally, myrrh. Myrrh, like frankincense, is aromatic, right? It has like a, like a distinct smell to it. But it was particularly used uh, not as much in worship services for gods as it much. It was used as a perfume. You would like wear it under your clothes to, to make you smell better. Uh, or it was, it was burned and ingested and consumed as a pain-relieving drug. When Jesus is dying on the cross in Mark 15, they give him myrrh. When Jesus' body is being buried in John 19, they use myrrh to anoint him. That was the, probably the main, the main use of myrrh in the ancient world was anointing uh, dead bodies to kind of you know, slow the process of decomposition. So you'd give myrrh to someone who is sick or in pain, or you would put it on a body after someone. Myrrh, myrrh smelled really good, but it tasted really bad. But it was also a pain reliever. And so it was just kind of associated with pain and suffering and death. Myrrh was for someone who was suffering or dead. You would give it to someone who was suffering or dead. So the Magi give myrrh to Jesus, implying that Jesus is going to suffer and, and die. So gold is a gift for a king. Frankincense is a gift for a god. Myrrh is a gift for someone who is going to suffer uh, and die. And again, we don't know that the Magi understood all of those implications fully or not. But we do know that those gifts are communicating specific things about Jesus that are true, right? Jesus received gold because he is 
a king. Jesus is the greater David. David was the king. Jesus is the king. Jesus sits on a throne. He rules over his people, takes care of them, protects them. He's their leader. He rules over them. They ascribe glory and honor to him. Jesus is our king. He's the king of our life. We owe our life and our allegiance and our loyalty to Jesus. Jesus has authority over our life because he is our king. There are a lot of people who identify as Christians but don't acknowledge or submit to the sovereign authority and the kingship of, of Jesus. Right? They're like Herod in that way. Right when when here here's G, you know here's Herod sitting on his throne and here's Jesus who represents a threat to his kingship his autonomy my ability to do whatever I want and Herod does not embrace and submit to the kingship and the authority of Jesus Herod hates it and he resents it and he tries to kill Jesus because Jesus uh, represents a, a, the possibility that Herod might not always get to do whatever he wants if Jesus is our king. That it means we, we submit to him, we bow our knee to him, we you know, are more committed to Christ and his will than we are to our own ambitions, preferences, causes, plans, etc. Jesus is our king, we bow to him, we give him our first allegiance. Also, Jesus is God, right? He's the, he's the son of God, the second person of the, of the Trinity. He has always existed from eternity past with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He possesses all of the attributes of divinity. He is infinite and self-existent uh, ex- and eternal and omniscient and omnipotent. He knows everything. He can do everything. All, everything that's true of God in the infinite sense is also true of, of Jesus, and therefore he deserves our worship. Just like there are people who identify as Christians who don't recognize the kingship of Jesus and don't want to submit to his authority in their life. There are people who identify as Christians that don't believe that Jesus is God. They think he's a great man, a great teacher, an exemplary saint, a martyr, right? They think that God is God and Jesus was a prophet sent by God to tell us about God, but not necessarily that Jesus was God. Jesus was very clear. He is God. That's why he was put to death, is because he kept saying that he is God. And then finally, Jesus would suffer and die, right? Jesus is king, Jesus is God, and Jesus would suffer and die. So this is the, this is the remarkable, this is what's so scandalous about the, the incarnation, about uh, baby Jesus. is not that, so king and God, those go together, right? If you're God, and you, then you have the rightful authority over the lives of the people that you created. But what doesn't make any sense, and what is scandalous, is the idea that um, a God king would also be someone who would suffer and die. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, became a person, right? The immortal God somehow took on mortality, right? The infinite God somehow put on finiteness. God became a man, and as a man, Jesus would suffer and die a brutal death. He was arrested, he was tried, he was condemned, he was, was beaten, he was led to Calvary. He was nailed on a cross. He was cru- like God became a man, and then that man suffered and died, not because of his own sins, but because of our sins. Jesus' life was perfect. His actions were perfect. His words were perfect. 
His thoughts were perfect. His motivations were perfect. Jesus didn't die because of his sins. He died because of our sins. Our rebellion against God is what was imputed to Christ when Jesus died on the cross. Not dying for his own sins, but dying for the sins of his people. And so the wrath and judgment that was rightly reserved for us was given to Jesus on the cross. He died the death that we deserve to die. He bore the wrath that we deserve to experience. On the cross, in a matter of hours, Jesus suffered more than any sinner ever will suffer in hell. In a matter of hours, Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on you or on me. And in his suffering and in his death, Jesus invites us to come to him, turn from our sin, trust in him so that, so that Jesus' death can be our death, Jesus' life can be our life, and Jesus' perfect record of righteousness can become our perfect record of righteousness. Jesus suffered and died to purchase our salvation so that we can trust in him and be reconciled to God. Jesus is king, Jesus is God, and Jesus suffered and died. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. So the Magi, like they get it, they, they, they are not fooled by Herod. They're like, something's off about that guy. Right? He feels less like Mr. Rogers or someone that I would want to have around my kids. And he feels more like Hitler, someone who's going to kill anyone that stands in his, his way. We don't think he really wants to worship Jesus like he says. We think he wants to kill Jesus. Uh, and so we're not going to bring word back to him like he asked. We're going to find another way home. And they go that route and they never see uh, Herod again. Sometimes, sometimes following Jesus means you're taken advantage of, and that just happens. Sometimes following Jesus means uh, some, someone hurts you, and instead of taking revenge on them or getting your pound of flesh, you just entrust that situation to God who judges justly, and you think, all right, God is going to make all things right. Sometimes, as Christians, you get taken advantage of. Sometimes, as Christians, though, you recognize when ruthless, wicked, evil people are trying to use you as a pawn to get what they want or to hurt people, and so you just don't let them do it, right? You, you dis- put some distance between uh, yourself and, uh, and, and them. Luke 16, Jesus says he wants his people to be shrewd, to be innocent as doves and wise as, as serpents. So sometimes when there's someone like Herod who's lying and deceiving and manipulating and trying to hurt people, there's plenty of times when you're, when you're hurt by someone, you turn the other cheek, but there's sometimes as Christians when you're hurt by someone and you just remove yourself from the situation, you go home a different way, like the Magi. So, The Magi came from the east, 
They come to Jesus, they bow down before Jesus, they fall prostrate before Jesus, they offer Jesus expensive, costly gifts, they worship Jesus as King and God and Savior. And that's what God is calling us to do as his people, right? To come to Christ, to leave our former way of life, the same way that the Magi left their home country, to leave our sin behind and our selfishness behind, to come to Jesus, to bow down before him, to trust him as our Savior who died in our place, to satisfy the wrath of God, to worship him as our God and glorious Lord, to honor him and obey him and submit to him as our King which is exactly what we do when we celebrate communion together. Right? We gather together as a family. We leave, our, we leave our former way of life behind. We leave our sin behind. We come together as a family and we say, God, you're the king. You're the authority. I want to obey you. I want to submit to you. God, you are my God. I want to worship you and exalt you. God, you are my savior. You suffered and died in my place. At the communion table, we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness and we receive the grace of Jesus as we celebrate together as a church family. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, you're a part of his church, the people of God, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. Come forward, take the elements, take a moment, confess, repent, receive, rejoice, eat and drink. It's our family meal. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to take communion because The Bible teaches specifically against that. Instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ. We'd invite you to trust in Jesus as your Savior so that you might be forgiven and reconciled to God and experience new life so that you can take communion with us going forward. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came here as a tiny baby, vulnerable, dependent on your mother, right? We thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you for the truths about Jesus that we see embedded in this story, that you are our King and our God and our Savior. We pray that you would help us to uh, just remember that, live in view of it, and respond to it with trust and obedience. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.